This is one of those key calculated moments. Frankly, this is arguably the definitive moment for Deep Space Nine in general, and I mean that with total sincerity. This is when Deep Space Nine really found itself, in my opinion, and this is also when Deep Space Nine started going in a completely different direction, mostly for the better. It is worthy of note that Ira Stephen Bear takes over as the mainliner after this episode, so make of that what you will. The timing of this really feels fortuitous. In fact, if this was another show, I honestly wonder if they could have accomplished this with the same power that they do in this one. So let's look at our uh, options here. They kill off a galaxy-class ship. It's probably the big one, arguably. They reveal the Dominion properly. They reveal two of the races of the Dominion, which we'll be seeing a lot of in the future, the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar. And there's another thing about that we'll talk about in a minute. <clears throat> this episode really, really establishes the tone for the Dominion, something I've been kind of skirting around talking about uh, in any significant amount, because I know that some people are watching this show leading up to this point. So... <laughs> Now, we also know that the full scope and scale of the Dominion wasn't actually decided at this point in time. And I've actually decided I will not really be discussing the Dominion proper here. I have another point in time where I would like to discuss the Dominion proper. I have the exact episode in mind, so don't worry. I know when we'll get there. Regardless, there's one other quick thing I want to mention as an aside. There's a couple things in the original scripts that never made it into the episode that I want to mention because it helps to highlight creator intent. The first is something I speculated on all the way back in, I can't remember the name of the episode, I think it was The Hunted, uh, about Tosk, right? Tosk, I am Tosk, and it's the guy who's hunted by the other guys, and the hunters are like, yes, this is what we do, and blah, 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 right? Basically, it is confirmed that the whole shrouding thing is, that was given to Tosk is actually something that was also given to them by the Vorta in service and blah, blah, blah. Basically confirming the connection that I theorized about. The other thing I want to mention here is that there's a bit where... Well, actually, I think I'll wait on that. So let's, let's actually move forward a little bit. I love the approach of this episode. I really do. This is one of the most impacting episodes in Deep Space Nine. I'd say one of... One, two four episodes that are really just, bam, hammer on the nail there, uh, episodes for Deep Space Nine. And it starts off with Cisco and Jake talking about going off to, you know, have a science survey of a planet, right? And then Quark, oh God, Quark's going to come along in order to try and convince Cisco to let him set up uh, the ability to sell stuff on ads and do displays for adverts, that kind of a thing. Oh, and then Quark really doesn't like it. It's, oh, my ears itch, and I have nostril issues, and God, I'm so tired, and there's bugs and everything, and it's just... And this, this episode is one of the most impacting and powerful episodes of DS9 history. <laughs> but this is all apropos. There are two elements to this story which start off small, minor, and frankly comical, but both are twisted, subverted, to be more accurate, into something far more serious and deadly. They actually name drop uh, Commander, or excuse me, Captain Keo. I forget how they say it. They say it really weird. Um, 
and the fact that the Odyssey is actually going to be visiting Deep Space Nine pretty early in the episode, well before any of these problems arise. They also mention the fact that Cisco has really been trying to get more time with his son lately because he's been so overwhelmed with all of the problems that's been happening on the, sh the station. The second thread is specifically the thread about the Ferengi. In fact, for the first mm, half or so of the episode, it seems to go out of its way to confirm what is usually considered the Ferengi stereotype. Bumble, bumble, bumble. Incompetent, 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 right? Both of these are then subverted throughout the course of the episode. The comedic approach turns into social commentary, and the everyday, this is just a Tuesday approach, turns into the reveal of the Dominion. Because that's the really key thing for me. This is basically just a Tuesday. I say that knowing that this episode will go live on a Tuesday. But you get my point. This is just a Tuesday. It's just another day. We're going to a class project on the other side of the wormhole. It's normal, it's ordinary, and it's mundane. And that's the point. The point is that the Dominion has been spending so much time and effort watching us, prepping for this, and planning for this, that by the time they finally reveal themselves, they do so in a way that completely just, just destroys anything we can do against them. Because they were ready for us, and we didn't know they existed. It helps to establish in a very good way the cred of the, the viability of the Dominion. And it also meant it kind of leads to something that's one of my least favorite parts of this episode. And I'll just go ahead and talk about this now. Um, the Jem'Hadar are Mary Sue's in this episode. Just in this episode. Like, never again. I get why they did that. See, here's the thing. The Dominion are a very serious threat. Duh. <laughs> but when you're doing an episode, you have to do some way to showcase the scale and scope of a threat. And usually the shorthand for doing that is basically just making them better than you. On an individual or microscopic level, in other words. In other words, each individual Jem'Hadar fighter is basically more than a match for a Galaxy-class cruiser, right? That's what I'm talking about. But that's not the threat the Dominion poses. The threat the Dominion poses is elsewise, and we'll talk more about that later. In other episodes, I mean, not today. So why do the extra Mary Sue thing? I mean, let's look at the list here, because I wrote it down. First of all, they have cloaks, the shrouds, and apparently... Well, we'll talk about the ship thing in a second. So they have cloaks, that's bad. They can beam through shields, and for once, that's considered an actual plot point, and not, today we can beam through shields, but tomorrow we can't. So, cloaks can beam through shields. They can ignore shields, which, if you're paying attention, is something that's actually considered to be one of the archetypal powers of the Borg. So, that's there. Um, they have either massively ranged transporters, or the ability to cloak their ships in a way that nobody can detect... One of the two. They are immune to tractor beams. <laughs> We're just running up the score at this point. Their weapons can shoot through our shields, at which point they are such a severe threat that they actually bypass the Borg in many ways. Oh yeah, and they have no problem with suicide ramming us, which is something we have basically no defense against. Since, again, we can't tractor them, and it would take too long to destroy them when they're on a suicide run, right? So they are overwhelmingly, laughably, hysterically overpowered in this episode. In future episodes, I think the writers looked at... I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. But I think the writers looked at that and were like, Whoa, we overdid it. We overdid it. Let's, let's, let's bring them back a bit. Let's bring them back a bit. 
I'm not even going to comment on the on the, what they do with the Vorta. Actually, I totally am, but I'm going to comment on it later. And I feel that's to the overall detriment, because I think they emphasized the threat of the Dominion without any of that crap. Be more precise about it. The Dominion demonstrate significant knowledge and understanding of us, which shows that they are well-versed in what's going on and have been spying on us for some time. Threat number one. They wipe out New Bajor without even being detected in the process. Threat number two. They establish themselves as having had this whole plan ready to go for us. And, again, it's the whole, they're, they were planning for a fight we didn't know existed thing. Point number three. Three very significant ways that helps to establish the severity and level of the threat of the Dominion without them basically being magic. I, I feel like Makarov showed up for just this one episode and was like, Behold! Go, my minions! And then he leaves, and that's why they don't have these powers in the future. Because that makes a lot of sense. If, if Space Wizard Makarov just showed up all of a sudden. And... Anyways. Moving on. I have a quick note here as well. Uh, you know, Quark being the comic relief. Yada, yada, yada. Um... But the planetary survey, it really showcases the attitude with the Gamma Quadrant. Now, I have actually been commenting on this here and there throughout the entire series so far. The Vulcans being over, the, the establishment of New Bajor, regular trade missions, regular examination missions. Everyone has basically been treating the Gamma Quadrant as the new frontier. Now, that makes sense, because it is. But no one's been treating it as the sovereign territory of another nation, which it is. And this is kind of the interesting point. Now, we know, thanks to behind-the-scenes materials and future information, that the Dominion were well aware of the Federation and had a plan to deal with them a couple centuries from now when the Federation would have naturally reached the Gamma Quadrant. The wormhole bypassed all that. So they're like, ugh, ugh. And so what the Dominion did, and this is actually very smart, which, again helps establish how terrifying and dangerous they are, what the Dominion did was they hid almost every aspect of their existence from them. There's a reason, in character, that we only get a few hints of the Dominion throughout Season 2. It's because only a few hints exist. When they finally unveil themselves, they only do so because they feel they've already won. They've already pushed the pieces into the right places on the board, and they're ready to go. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned that again because that helps the tonal shift. I've said before, I said this at the very beginning of the season, season two of Deep Space Nine was Deep Space Nine trying to find itself. And I feel that they have succeeded with the Dominion. They are no longer outposts of in between Bajoran and Cardassians. They are no longer, you know, the, the Wild West kind of a thing going on. They are no longer uh, the, the new frontier with exploring the unknown of the Gamma Quadrant. They are now the front line against a hostile power. And that is what DS9, the show on the station, will remain for the entirety of its remainder run. For good and for bad, but I think very much in a positive. Uh, let's talk about the Vorta really quick. The Vorta have telekinetic powers! Never seen again. Now that's kind of... Huh? What's more damning than that is the fact that she has absolutely no reaction to Odo. I'm just going to leave that there for no reason. I'm just going to mention it. For anybody watching this new, don't worry about it. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but I mention that because even the creators admitted they hadn't really designed the Vorta yet. They had the basic concept. The, 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 the salespeople, the businessmen, were like, yeah, you're going to do this. 
And if you don't, then they bring in the Jem'Hadar. Now, I do like that. In fact, <laughs> even though we learn eventually that this whole situation is engineered, I could see a situation like the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar cooperating to create a Dominion rather naturally. A race that is really, really good at fighting, and a race that's really, really good at negotiating make hella partners, don't you think? I didn't mean to say hella there. I apologize. Hell of partners. <laughs> Hell of a good team. Now, I just have a quick couple of notes, because, I, I, weirdly enough, I don't have a lot to say about this landmark episode. You know, Nog freaking out. The whole Jake and Nog side plot is actually pretty awesome. They follow a wonderful and very fluid path between, you know, uncertainty and, like, not terror, more like dread. Like, fear is on the horizon and they know it's coming. Then they get up to the ship, and there's this brief jubilation, but it's okay, now we don't know what to do. Oh god, there's a ship! Complete freakout! Complete freakout! Complete freakout! Okay, 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 we're gonna try and fix this, we're gonna try and fix this. And you could just feel, and they do this very well. Credit to the actors, credit to the writers. They do a good job of showcasing that Jake and Nog are completely in over their heads, and have no idea what they're doing, and are just freaking out constantly, and just barely holding on by the, the seat of their pants. Lovely shot of the runabout, like, just meandering. And I love Jake's line, yeah, it's going to take us like five years to get home at this point. So they're like, uh, and then that final bit when the Odyssey shows up, and the rest of the ships, and they're just like, oh god, oh god, wait, no, it's them! It's them! It's them! They sell it is what I'm trying to say. They sell the idea of these kids and their own small but nevertheless significant part in this overall role. It is harder than it sounds to write little people who are not smart, who are not strong, who do not have superpowers, who do not have great political affluence or great wealth or great resources, and still have them be significant on a macroscopic scale. So credit where credit is due. That's awesome and I love it. Um... I like how Kira behaves to Tilak Talan. She just kind of has this, hello, you know, very, very stoic. I love it, I love it. She's, I, I'm sorry about the force field, but mo usually people identify themselves. And he's like, yeah, okay. And then, of course, he walks with the force field because he's got to establish how much of a Mary Sue he is. Look, I'm sorry. I get the point. I get the impact. It still bothers me, especially <laughs> in hindsight, especially when you're going through with analysis mode on. It would have been so much more interesting to me, personally, if he beamed over, was willing to hand the thing, and you know they lower the force field for a second, so he hands over the pad, then he admits that he killed all the Bajorans, and they're like, we're going to take you in or whatever, and he just kind of smiles and detonates, damaging the bridge, damaging the, 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 comm, sta or the comm stations around him. And the, the Dominion ship just flies off. Right? <laughs> Doesn't that actually kind of make more sense, really? Anyways, <clears throat> so, New Bajor. I mentioned that before, back in Crossover. It will actually be mentioned one other time uh, in a future episode, but this is the second of the three mentions of New Bajor. A whole colony wiped out. Think about that. Now, the obvious implication and the obvious impact here is, duh, uh, the Dominion are not just here to do business, uh, they are evil. <laughs> just, just to put that as bluntly as I can. This is definitely the antagonist, and the whole purpose of New Bajor and its annihilation is to serve as shorthand for the audience that, no, really, these are the bad guys. However, what I find myself thinking more than anything is what I mentioned back in Crossover. 
New Bajor as a resource colony, something to help, you know, funnel back food and supplies or whatever back to Bajor, which, remember, has still kind of been struggling for basically all of Season 2. Right? In fact, if you think about it, the idea that Bajor is now struggling and is in a very precarious position, nestled between Cardassia and the Dominion, well, it would make more sense if they were to be, let's say, a little bit more overt in petitioning the Federation for direct aid. Which is also funny, because starting from Season 3 onwards, the Federation and Starfleet in particular will have more presence here because of the Dominion. So, maybe that was all intentional. I don't know. But it does slide in pretty neatly. So, Quark has a great scene where he unloads on Cisco about the Ferengi. This is the social commentary thing I mentioned, the idea that the Ferengi, for all of their unpleasantness and for all of their joking nature, have never actually been as bad as, you know, the humans have been in their history. And I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it is posited as true that the, the Ferengi never had some of the garbage we've had in our real-life history. I'm with the concept here, but what I love most about it and and Quark actually comments on this in the future as well. The idea that one of the reasons humans don't care for Ferengi is because they remind us of who we used to be. Now, that amuses me tremendously, given what the Ferengi were originally supposed to be, right? Yankee traders, you remember that? All the way back in the last outpost. TNG, season one, episode like four or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head. Very early on. Right? Yankee traders. They're what we used to be. That's why we hate them. That's why we fear them. There's just something apropos about that idea that was completely unintended, but nevertheless kind of fits. I also have to admit that I like the way Armin Shimmerman delivers that whole speech. He's really good at shifting back and forth between comedic quark and serious quark, and he does it several times in this episode. I am also very much fond of the fact that later on, Cisco flat out says, we're not abandoning him. I do like that, because, because Quark's not a bad guy. Now, I've said this before, but Quark, for his many flaws, is not the kind of person who would do atrocious or horrible things. He's just not. He does have a moral conscience, and he does have lines he doesn't cross. There's a nice scene where Odo says, I'm going to make sure we rescue Quark. And Kira says something along the lines of, I'd be willing to take that bet, or something along the lines of, no, no, I'd be willing to take that chance. I wrote it down. Uh, as in, Odo says, I think you'd miss him too. And she says, I'd be willing to take that chance. And there's this very brief thing, like less than a second, where she's looking up at him and his expression changes as he's looking down at her. And then she adds, but not today. It's a nice little remark, and it also helps to emphasize a thematic point which will be significant for the next four, uh, yeah, four years. No, five years. Three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, I'm right, five years. God, I can math, I swear. For the next five years of episodes, the idea that regardless of quarreling or bickering or insults or rivalry or whatever, there's a difference between someone you dislike and someone who is actively trying to destroy you and your life. And um, I know that sounds like a duh, but it kind of helps to define lines and will be a recurring theme, like I said, throughout the rest of the show. Anywho, 
So, it's, I'm sorry, I know I already commented on Jake and uh, Nog, but there's a great scene. Autopilot has been disabled. Yay! Set a course for Deep Space Nine. Cannot comply. Autopilot has been disabled. No! <laughs> I love that. I love that. Anyways, anyways. <clears throat> so, let's talk about how obvious the trap is in hindsight. Now, I don't blame anyone for not catching on to this. Really, I don't. But there are a few hints that Cisco probably should have picked up on. So they send off the two kids. They are immediately after that, Eris shows up, attacks one of them, acts confused, stalls, gets hit by the Jem'Hadar, captured. Now that was all obviously planned, because again, they've been watching this for some time. So we know with fairly high certainty that they were waiting for the moment when... Uh, when the the kids were off and away in order to capture them in order to ensure that they would get away because that is again the plan so then they make absolutely no effort to find the kids and in fact show no awareness of the kids existing at all despite the fact that the three of them are in a cell and talking openly about their ship and Jake and Nog actually I just remembered Quark also mentions Nog specifically which also is another point, that they're making no effort whatsoever to keep comms on them. Even after they make a point of demonstrating how much they know about what's going on over in the Beta and Alpha Quadrants. But I digress. <clears throat> Moving on. Then, uh, next thing that happens is... They, so they put the prisoners together, leave them completely alone... And the Jem'Hadar only show up at any time when it's convenient. First, when they're done fiddling with the, the necklace to begin with, to try and analyze it and examine it. And second, when they have actually already successfully gotten it off. Now, that is probably the most suspicious circumstance of all. And in any other show, I would chalk it up to bad writing. But here, it's obviously part of the trap. Because, think about this for a moment. If they're aware of the fact that they've escaped, that means they have some kind of detection thing going on. And yet if they have some kind of detection thing going on, they would have probably had some kind of something. I mean, it's <laughs> echoing in caves, for God's sakes. So that the Jem'Hadar was... Okay. The Jem'Hadar was not that far away. Like, she takes out the thing. They take, like, three steps. A Jem'Hadar is there. Immediately. Which means the Jem'Hadar is not far. So even if they somehow do not have some kind of audio detection thing going on in this prison, they can just hear them down the hall. Okay? Now that's important because they've been talking openly about things like Jake, Nog, the ship, and the, the psionic disruptor and breaking it out so they can fix this whole situation. And yet the Jem'Hadar do nothing about any of that until they actually break out. And then they send one guy tunneling down the hall and immediately gets taken out and then they get free actually they sent two guys sorry i apologize they sent two guys two <clears throat> yeah it's <laughs> like i said it's pretty well set up uh, in hindsight i don't blame them for not picking up on it though they were all in fairly strenuous uh, circumstances so then the battle begins. It's actually a very brief battle, especially, well, I shouldn't say, by this era of Star Trek standards, it's very brief. Later, Deep Space Nine and some of the previous TNG stuff, which we won't be covering for a few years, will have far larger scale battles than what we see here. But it's very effective at demonstrating what's going on, because one of the very first things they do is they showcase how they can shoot right through their shields, and then they say it, just in case anyone mentioned, uh, you know, forgot about that or didn't notice it. But one of the first things they go for is the nacelle. Do you notice that? One of the first targets. Now that's important. Because remember, part of the part of the entire purpose behind this offensive on behalf of the Jem'Hadar 
is not to destroy the enemy, it's to send a message. If the Jem'Hadar wanted to destroy one galaxy cruiser and a couple of runabouts, they would have. <laughs> but no, the purpose is to try and make sure that everything is being fully communicated here. After all, they want them to get back, and they want their spy in their midst, although, eh, we'll talk about that someday. So they shoot to disable and shoot to hurt, but not shoot to kill, because if you can shoot through a ship's shields, that ship is screwed. Star Trek has established many, many times, over and over and over, that the strength of a ship in combat sits on the, the power of its shields, basically. The moment you can bypass those shields, it's over. This is something that was made very, very clear in Star Trek II, as well as everything ever when it comes to TNG, right? This is, this is not a new concept, is what I'm trying to say. And I mentioned, I'm trying to establish the cred here in order to make my point, because this is a very long-standing Star Trek concept. Shields are like 80% of the overall defenses of a ship, with 10% being maneuvering and 10% being hull. Once you can shoot through those shields, it's over. So they could have destroyed the Odyssey in seconds if they wanted to. And destroyed the hull, just over the bridge, and a few shots directed at the, you know, towards where the engineering section is, and it's gone. But they don't do that. They just hurt it a lot. Then, well, then the big moment happens. They destroy the Odyssey. But they don't do it the easy way, which they easily could have done, I want to remind you, as I've just established. No, they ram that sucker. They send a Jem'Hara fighter in there and suicide run the Odyssey, destroying it in its entirety. Now that moment was very deliberately crafted, out of character and in character. Out of character, the entire point is, and several of the creators have said, they believe if that was the Enterprise-D, they'd be dead. Now, whether or not people agree with that or not is going to be a heavily debated topic. But that is one of the points that was being made. This is also the third time a Galaxy-class ship has been destroyed on camera, ever. The first was the Yamoto. Yeah, the Yamoto. Yeah, that's right, the Yamoto. All the way back in Season 2 in a very powerful and very impacting scene, which they did a lot of good stuff with. The second is the Enterprise itself being destroyed over and over and over during... I can never think of the name of it. It's one of my favorite episodes. I can never think of the name of it. Uh, cause and Effect. This is the third, the Odyssey, here. This is kind of a, a milestone. You know, this is, this is still a rare event that happens. And, of course, TNG just went off the air. This is trying to showcase the level of threat that these people present from an out-of-character perspective, to show that this is how far they're willing to go and that even the Enterprise would have died here. Right? From an in-character perspective, it is also perfectly in, 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 uh, in congruence with the message they're trying to send. They could have destroyed that ship, but wanted to showcase just how far they're willing to go. We've already beaten you, and you have already lost. You can't effectively fight back against us. So we're going to send a ship to ram you to death. We will sacrifice one of our own ships, because we just do not give that much of a damn about our ships. And we care that much about defeating you. We're willing to go farther than you. What are you going to do about it? It is a very powerful moment. If anything, my only regret is that Cisco actually answers the question. Right? It's, it's a very minor nitpick. But in the, in the immediate sea following it, one of them's like, oh my god, why would they do that? We were already retreating. 
And then Cisco says they wanted to show us how far they're willing to go. I would have cut that line completely and just had had the camera pan over them as they're staring grimly at, at the echoes of the destruction, right? Then we find out that Eris is like, oh my god, it's such a surprise. And she beams away or to a cloak ship or to Timbuktu, I don't know. And then Cisco says, this will be the first time they fight and we'll be ready for them. I have to admit, that line also kind of bothered me. Again, most of that's because of how much the Jem'Hadar are just ridiculously overpowered in this episode. Like, there's, In many ways, they literally surpass the Borg, and I'm pretty sure that was on purpose because the Borg have been the biggest bad guys in Star Trek uh, to date as of this point in time. Arguably still are. But... I guess they had to end on that kind of a note, but I admit I would love to go back and just edit a few lines here, rather than that we will be ready for them. You know, something a little grimmer. The first battles will be fought here, and we have to be ready for those. We have to be ready. You know, something like that. In other words, rather than we've got this, it'll be we have to do this. Just a little bit different tone. I don't know. Still a very powerful episode, despite everything. <laughs> the episode even made me laugh legitimately several times. Brilliantly crafted overall. And of course, leading into Season 3, where I will be seeing you guys next time. <laughs>